Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 194. And it's great to be with you guys this week. Uh, there's a guy that's really intrigued me for some time now. And it just so had this was total happenstance that Travis texted me one day and he goes, hey, man, do you want to interview Alex Honnold? And I said, the guy that climbs the rocks with no ropes? And he said, yes, that guy. And I said, well, hell yeah, I want to interview him. Uh, he's fascinated me. A lot of you guys have probably seen his movie, Free Solo, it's called. And if you haven't, you should go watch it because visually it's a breathtaking experience. And the anxiety that builds within you as you watch it is unique. It's like, I, I was nervous watching it. Like the pucker factor and watching Free Solo, it is there. It's, it's intense. Yeah, the pucker meter's pegged on that one. Um, and so what I expected and what I got were completely different things. I was, given what he does, I mean, his, his entire life is devoted for 25 years. I mean, he, he started climbing at uh, things at 10 years old. And he went, so, so there's this, there's this rock face at Yosemite national park that they call El Capitan. They call it El Cap. The insiders call it El Cap. And it's this unbelievable rock face that's 3000 feet of granite, basically. Correct. Uh, it's wild to look at. And again, the group that, that directed and produced the movie did just a tremendous job when you're a tv nerd when you're when you're a an on-screen aesthetics nerd like we are you know folks that that get the blessing of producing features at a high end uh at a high level you pay attention to television very differently than a, a standard viewer would and so when you when you know things that go on behind the curtain you're apt to to look at things differently and and i watched that thing with just a a dropped jaw and they did such a good job and and that's just the aesthetics part of it the physical and mental feat that alex achieved and i said this to him in the interview the new york times i think it was the new york times said it was one of the greatest athletic feats of all time and should be celebrated as such and i asked his opinion on that and I wanted his perspective on that opinion. Uh, I back to what I was expecting versus what I got. Given what he does, and 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 the isolation that's involved in it, at least from an ignorant outsider perspective, the isolation that's involved in having the balls to, without any fallback, for lack of a better term climb up these rock faces knowing that one misstep could be your demise. I thought it would be an extremely spiritual experience talking to Alex about what that spirit is within him and where he goes. To what degree is there an out-of-body experience when you're up there and you know that your fingers are, are, are holding your body to this rock and the grip of your shoes, the traction of your shoes are the only things holding you on this rock face two, 3,000 feet up in the air. And the slightest miscue, dude, you're dead. What's well, the thing is, if 
your ring finger slightly comes off, that could be it. Or there's times where he would grab something and a piece of the wall will just come off. And that's not his doing, but the slightest thing is could be a death. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to see what he does. And I again, I thought I was going to get this insanely deep perspective on this passion that's not what i got at all i got alex right out of bed i guess he he was groggy he told me that he's like dang man you're going straight to spirituality i just woke up it's early out here in la and i was like man i've been up seven hours already i'm firing on all eight i'm kicking ass and taking names i don't know what what's going on out there in la la land but out here in charlotte we're kicking some ass and for someone like you who loves to get to know people and really dive deep and then you're getting you know usually we're talking to football players basketball players where they're you know the you know yeah there's devastating injuries and catastrophic injuries but for the most part you don't have to think about it where you have this person that you know one little thing could be life or death so you really want to get into it with him right and he was like either one of two things either a he's wired very very differently and you guys will hear in this interview even though it's even though it's not what i expected i was going to get it's still really introspective because of what he didn't say and how to take that type of challenge with that much at stake and really look at something that is 4d in a linear way. And I just, uh, you know, I don't look, he was just taken aback on multiple questions that I was, was going, was attempting to go as deep as I was attempting to go. I wonder if a lot of it is also that, you know, with the what could happen kind of stuff that it's one of those things where you don't even want to go that route. Maybe, man. But like, I look, I grew up on, uh, going to Dale Earnhardt Media School. You know, race car drivers don't think about dying. It's not what they do. That's, and, and the rock climber guys don't think about dying. But, and that's not where I went with, uh, with the interview. No. I mean, certainly we discussed the potential, but... Y'all will see. Uh, I think you're going to find this to be interesting. I want your feedback, please. I want to know, have you seen Free Solo? If you haven't, are you going to go watch it because of this? I want to know what you think of Alex's perspective and all of that because a lot of y'all who listen to Marty Smith's America are a lot like me. You you enjoy vulnerability. That's the word I've been looking for. For I've been talking for ten minutes, and it's that it's that vulnerability that I expected him to have, and does doesn't seem to exist within him. And I want to know your feedback. We don't throw out our Twitter handles very often, or our Instagram handles very often on here. Mine's at Marty Smith ESPN. Travis's is at Travis Rockhold. Hit both of us up and let us know what you think of this interview because. I was fascinated by the guy beforehand. When Travis hit me to tell me that we got him, I was like, awesome. I can't wait to know what what you guys think about this. Uh, Before we get to Alex and his straight-out-of-bed perspective on uh, what the New York Times says is one of the greatest athletic feats of all time, make sure you listen to the SV pod. Scott, 
and Stanford Steve really dive into their NCAA tournament brackets. They break down the NCAA tournament. Like many of you, Travis and I have NCAA tournament brackets that are wadded up and have been thrown in the fire. Well, I only had one to begin with. I, I only do one every year. That's it. I only did one. And uh, hopefully the bosses aren't listening right now. I deleted the ESPN, that the tournament challenge app off my phone about 515 on Friday afternoon. Yeah. I, so, all right. Uh, we On the other side, we're going to discuss that because all of you guys know what a hardcore Ohio State Buckeye Travis is. He's an alumnus. And they got beat in the first round as a two seed by Oral Roberts, which now we know is no slouch. But nonetheless, they are but the ninth team ever to experience such thing. We'll discuss that on the other side. So I can't wait to hear y'all's perspective on this. Hit us up. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review as well, please. It matters to all of our sponsors. So without further ado, here is my conversation with free climber, free rock climber, free soloist, Alex Honnold. First, Alex, very simply, why do you free climb? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a... Uh... It's a complicated, I mean, so okay. I'm like, all right, I, I just got up. It's like early on the West Coast. And I'm like, oh man, that's like asking, you know, like, why do you do the, the like, why do you do what you do? And you're like, why well, do you breathe? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, I've been climbing for 25 years and, and I've devoted, you know, all of my effort to, to this, to this craft basically. And to me, free soloing or climbing without a rope is sort of an important subset of climbing. You know, it's it's sort of like the the final exam of climbing. So, you know, I don't always climb without a rope, but it's important to me to sometimes climb without a rope just because it's it's like the, you know, it's like a peak experience in climbing, basically, or it can be. So describe that vibrancy of how alive you feel when you're on that rock face with no support. <laughs> it's interesting because like, so sometimes that's like way more intense and it's, I don't know. I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a peak moment in climbing, basically. It's like the, you know, it's the Super Bowl of climbing. It's the, it's like what your season leads up to. And so in some ways it's not even so much that the moment itself is more vibrant. It's that those moments give purpose to the whole rest of your year in a way, you know, it's like the thing that you train for, the thing that you think about, the thing that you're inspired by. And then, it is true that the moments where you're free soloing, where you're actually up on a cliff climbing without a rope, I mean, those can be more intense and those can be vivid moments. But in some ways, that's not really the important thing. The important part is that having given you, you know, purpose throughout your entire year. So the purpose is the free climb or is there a greater purpose beyond just reaching the top? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the question at the, at the heart of all sports, isn't it? You know, like, is, is the purpose to win a game or is the purpose to, to live a good life in the pursuit of winning a game? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I mean, certainly for climbing, I think that the purpose comes from living a good life. And, and honestly, with climbing, part of the purpose comes from having adventures outdoors, like being in nature, appreciating nature, you know, interacting with the environment. Like, you know, I think having the big challenges in climbing are really just, uh, you know, a reason to, to help you lead a good life. What introduced you to the sport? 
<laughs> I was like, it's, it's, it feels very early in the morning to be getting right into the heart of, uh, you know, what is purpose. Yeah. It's a, it's like noon here. I live in Charlotte. So it's almost noon here and I've you know been up since five 30. So I'm firing on all eight brother. Um, you've, uh, you've been reflecting on uh, life's big questions all morning. You know, I like, do that all day, every day. That's just who I am. Uh, so sorry that if, if we need to get Alex a cup of coffee, ladies and gentlemen, we need to, we need to give him some oxygen. We need to get him rolling. Uh, I do understand that mental fog that comes with it being that early. Well, it's not even mental fog, but it's like, it's really getting at the core of what is climbing and why do you do it? And I'm kind of like, well, I mean, part of it's habit, you know, part of it's just because that's what I've been doing every day for 25 years. But, but yeah, and then part of it is seeking peak experiences. And then part of it is, you know, because it gives me a, a good reason to live my life. And part of it's just, I enjoy it, you know, but it's like, it's, it's rare that you think through, you know, those kinds of questions. It's like, you know, why do you do what you do? And you're like, well, to be honest, you know, I don't think about it every day. So, right. You know. It's nice yeah. to think about it though. It challenges yeah. you. That's the beautiful part of it. It challenges you to re kind of reconnect with what you do and why you do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So how did you get introduced to it? Um, so, I mean, so I'd always loved climbing on things, you know, sort of the, the elemental quality of climbing. I love you know, climbing over fences and whatever as a kid. And then uh, a climbing gym opened in my hometown when I was 10. And so I started going to the climbing gym sort of as a family excursion, just like playing with my, with my, my dad and my sister. And then, uh, and then I was really into it. And so I basically just kept climbing, you know, from then on. What do you recall about the first time you climbed with no ropes? Oh, I, I remember it being pretty intense the first time. I mean, I remember the specific routes, uh, these two cliffs near near my home in the Sierra Nevada. And uh, I remember feeling super intense. And I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be epic. And, uh, you know, now looking back on it, they're very easy routes and they weren't that intense. But, uh, you know, at the time, it really, it really felt like something. What makes a good free climber? Like, what makes you good at that? Well... I mean, practice, basically, I mean, experience, practice, and, and sort of a, a calmness, maybe. But I think that what's made me good at, at, at free soloing is the basically the drive to do it. Like, I've always been motivated to, to seek out those kinds of experiences and to and to push myself in that way. And so, you know, I think that ultimately, that's what's allowed me to get good at it is because I'm always motivated to, to go try it more. I know that you share this wisdom and your passion for it with groups. I saw that you did a TED talk and, and that whole thing. What's your message? What's the broader message to people when you're discussing that passion? I don't know if I have a specific message, but, but often I talk about the value of preparation basically, because, you know, a lot of things that I do, I think, you know, you know, audiences think it's insane. Like folks think it's totally crazy and, and that, you know, I must have a death wish or something. And what I talk about is that, you know, far from it, I'm trying to minimize risk as much as possible. I'm trying to take something that seems really dangerous and to make it feel safe and to make it feel comfortable. And, and the way I do that is through a lot of practice, a lot of time, a lot of training. And yeah, I mean, I guess I never really think about having a message, but I mean, if anything, it would be something like that, you know, to, to work on what you do and to, to if you're going to do something, do it well. It intrigues me that you use the word comfortable, but comfortable because watching the videos, whether it's free solo, whether it's uh, just a trailer for free solo, whatever video there is of you doing this, it looks anything but comfortable. Your body's contorted. You have your fingers. 
I mean, there might be a an inch or or an eighteen, you know, a, a, an inch and a half wide crack, and you have both hands and both feet in it in there. Yeah. It does not look comfortable at all. Yeah, but but actually, it's funny you mentioned crack climbing because that, in some ways, is the most comfortable style of climbing. Because I mean, you're right that it's a thin little crack and it's just your fingers in there. But if you put them in, it you can kind of lock your fingers in, and it feels like your skeleton is like locked into the mountain. It feels like a key in a lock or something. And so it can feel incredibly safe. You know, it, it's a style of climbing that, that if you feel like your bones are locked into the mountain, like there's just no way you can fall out of that, you know, if unless you get too fatigued or something. And so if you have the fitness for it, you just, you feel incredibly safe the whole time. And, and really that's sort of an ideal situation when you're free stolen is to be in a really exposed situation, you know, something that looks like it should be crazy, but instead you feel incredibly safe, you feel comfortable, you feel calm. What's the most difficult part of of that challenge like in terms of of what you're trying to climb yeah i mean so the the most difficult thing in free soloing would be sort of the opposite of the the secure feeling of crack climbing if you have like a blank face with like very few holds where you have to just trust the the friction of your shoes you know you're basically like pacing your foot against the wall and just like trusting that friction i mean that's the kind of thing that i mean you know makes me feel a little uneasy like well you know, because that's something that you can't, you can't physically train for that, you know, no matter how strong you are, no matter how much you've trained, it's like, if your foot slips, you're going to die. And that's, that's like the biggest challenge in soloing, I think. How close have you come to that foot slipping? <laughs> well, I mean, I've actually had, you know, feet slip a few times, but always in situations where, you know, I was like holding on and it worked out okay. But um, I mean, most, my closest near misses have probably all been from breaking holds. Like when you're climbing and something just rips off in your hand. And the, the thing about that is, you know, obviously that's dangerous, but in a way it also resolves itself very, like basically by the time you realize that anything has happened, it, the situation is already done. You know, it's kind of like a binary black or white, like it like either it rips and you fall off or it's ripped off and you didn't fall. And by the time you know the difference, you're safe. You know what I mean? It's like, it's an interesting, it's like avoiding a car wreck or something. It's like, by the time you realize what's happening, it's over situation is already done and so you're like technically there's no reason to be afraid anymore because the situation's already done now you just have to take a deep breath and calm yourself back down and be like all right well that was a near miss so i'm gonna ask you another kind of deeper philosophical question and if it's a dumb one you can say so i'm, I'm not proud yeah <laughs> it seems to me just as as someone who's ignorant and doesn't know that world like like an expert does mm -hmm. that one step in your world is a is really long like one step in your world climbing up that rock face is not a standard step in somebody else's world so what is the what is the process of choosing and taking steps what what, what do you mean like uh i guess i mean that every every step could be success like every step could be catastrophe well, but that's only true for sort of cutting edge free soloing, you know, like very difficult climbing without a rope. But the thing to remember with climbing is that climbing comes from this rich history of, of mountaineering and alpinism. And then you get into like rock climbing at one end of that spectrum. And so when you think about free soloing, you know, you're sort of envisioning me on the side of a sheer cliff, thousands of feet up with no rope. And you're like, that seems insane. But yeah. there's a spectrum from like hiking to like scrambling on rocks to like scrambling on steeper rocks where you probably need your hands. And then eventually you're scrambling on rocks where you're like, maybe I should have a rope, but you know, I'm probably okay. 
And then that continues all the way up to where you're on crazy, crazy cliffs. And so nobody starts by free soloing a cap. You know, people start by, by going on a hike and like scrambling up a little bluff next to the trail. And then that sort of evolves into, into real free soloing at some point. And so, you know, when you're talking about taking steps in the sport, it's like your first steps are not the crazy extreme ones. The first steps are, are all the sort of adventuring in the mountains. And then you, as you feel more and more comfortable and as you're more capable, you eventually build up to, I mean, well, to be honest, nobody, nobody really builds up to the full on crazy cliffs. You know, that's, that's a pretty uh, fringe activity. You know, it's, it's not as if I have many friends out there free soloing big walls with me. So how did free solo come to be? The film? Yeah. Well, so, you know, like I said, there are not that many people doing that kind of thing. And so I soloed a bunch of other walls. And so the filmmakers approached me about uh, doing a film of some kind. They didn't have any particular objective in mind, uh, but they just thought that it was interesting that I was drawn to, you know, certain types of walls. And it just so happened that I was personally planning on, on working on El Cap soon. And so it kind of made perfect sense to work with the film crew on the El Cap project, just because it was actually helpful for me to have the film crew around. Like it's, uh, it helps distribute the work better. I mean, cause it's a lot of work to hike up to the top of the wall with ropes and like carry all the equipment and like manage all that. And, you know, I'd been kind of thinking that I would do it by myself in secret, but you're kind of like, oh, that's a lot of work to do totally by yourself with like no help. And so when the film crew, you know, said they wanted to make a movie, I was like, perfect. They can help me carry all my stuff up there. You, know. you did it in four hours? Well, ultimately, well, yeah, yeah, I did the climb in I think 356, but um, but you know that's after two years of working on it, so it's like you're two like, years. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've climbed El Cap uh, I think over a hundred times now, you know, with ropes and and via different routes and different techniques and things. But um, you know, so it's it's yeah, you're like, oh, I did it in 356, and that makes it sound so easy. But you know, after two years of work, you're like, I would hope so. <laughs> like, so I, I love this from the New York Times. You know it well. Uh, it's about you. But it says that, that your free climb of El Capitan, is that how I say it, El Capitan? Yeah. yeah. El Cap, I know you guys uh, call yeah. it. Must be celebrated as one of the greatest athletic feats of all time. What's your perspective on that statement? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm honored, obviously. I'm like, oh, wow, the sure. New York Times, like, that's, that's really, that's touching. Um, and I will say that in the years leading up to the free solo of El Cap, like in the eight years that I dreamt about climbing El Cap, I always thought that it would be the craziest thing ever done. It would be like the most inspiring, most, you know, I, I imagined it, like I certainly put it on a pedestal as like this would be the most incredible thing ever. But then as you work on it and as it becomes more possible, it starts to feel more inevitable. You know, it's like by the time I finally did it, I was like, well, of course I'm going to do this. You know, like this is the end of a very long path and I've been walking down that path and here I am. And so then by the time you do it, it feels totally normal. And so then when you hear people write about it in, in that way, you're like, well, you know, to me, it feels totally normal at this point. But that's at the end of, you know, an eight, 10 year path. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, I will say that, that I'm, I'm proud of free selling El Cap and it was a tremendous amount of effort. So, you know. During, so that's interesting to me that it was a, a decade long experience, really, in terms of preparation and, and planning and all of that. How much doubt was filtered throughout that decade for you? Oh, well, I mean, the first seven years, I was like, this is impossible. <laughs> like, have you ever been to Yosemite Valley? I have not, unfortunately, but I will. You need, you need to go. Yeah. But for the first time you drive into the valley, the way the road uh, drives in, you look straight up at El Cap and this crazy view, it fills your whole windshield. 
And so every season I would drive in Yosemite and I'd see that view of El Cap and I'd just be like, well, this is not the year because that is totally insane. <laughs> like it's, it's very intimidating. It's, it's, it's just too much. And so for seven years, I was like, this is never going to happen. And then I finally got to the point where I thought that maybe I could at least put the effort in. I could start working on it. And then once I started working on it, it started to feel more and more possible and then eventually inevitable. When you got in life, it's interesting. Most of the time when we have a challenge before us for which we've prepared and, and had some level of anxiety, when mm-hmm. we get done with it is when we realize the mental and emotional toll that it's taken on us. It's like this weight. How did much? How did you experience? What was your experience with with, with what? How you felt afterwards? That uh, yeah, actually, I mean, so I didn't exactly experience that, but I will say that it has felt like there's a weight off to some extent, just because for seven or eight years, I would always think of things in terms of El Cap. You know, like if I was going to work on other aspects of climbing or go on an expedition, in the back of my mind, I was always kind of thinking like, is this better or worse for my eventual goal of resolving El Cap? Like everything was filtered through this lens of how will it affect my dream of climbing El Cap at some point, you know, and, and it is nice now to not think about that, you know, it's like, definitely feels like closing a certain chapter in life and being able to just move forward with other parts of life, which, which is great. What are you thinking about in the moment? During that four hours, what are you thinking about? It, it depends a little bit. So a lot of it, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just on autopilot, just executing moves. And, you know, if you've seen the film, you know that I memorized yeah, sure. and I had all kinds of notes. And so the point of that preparation is to make sure that I don't have to think about it, that I can just climb. But there are, you know, maybe a third of the route is relatively easy. And so in the easy sections, I can look around, I can enjoy the view. I can, you know, think about conditions, be like, what a beautiful morning. It's so crisp today. Like, great. You know? <laughs> Like, and, and that's, you know, that's part of what makes the experience worth it. You know, like the fact that there are some easier sections, that's the part where you, I can actually have a good time, you know, be like, I'm having fun up here and I like this and this is incredible, you know? And as, as it turns out on, on El Cap, the final 200 feet or so are, are relatively easy and, and relatively secure. So it was like the perfect way, you know, it's like a, it's like a celebratory lap around the track at the end or something when you've like basically finished the race, but you're just cruising up easy terrain being like, I'm the man, you know, like, so it's like, <laughs> like look at this, you know? And so, so, I mean, there definitely is, was a, an, a degree of fun involved in the climb for sure. What's the, so I'm intrigued too by the, like the liability parts of this <laughs> for the park. What the hell do you have to go through with the park? to get the opportunity to do that? Nothing. You just, uh, wow. Yeah. Rock climbing is an important historical part of Yosemite Valley. I mean, it's basically been uh, an important part of Yosemite since the, almost since the founding of the park. And so, uh, yeah, there are no permits required or anything. You, You just go climb, you have an adventure. I mean, it's basically like hiking, you know, where like anybody can hike on, on trails, you know, on any open trails, you can just go hiking if you want. And so, uh, the, the climbing routes are the same way. Some of those shots during the film, uh, that's not just hiking, uh, Alex. I, I, know, I know you want to equate it that way, but mere I, I, mortals I, do not. I say it's regulated the same way as hiking. <laughs> there you go. See, that's better. That's yeah. it. I read that you lived in mom's van till you blew it up or something, and then basically you had a tent and a bike. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. what's your ethos? Well, the ethos has always been – a focus on the task, you know, a focus on climbing. Like, what does it take to be a good climber? 
And so, you know, I lived in my mom's van for a bit. I destroyed it because I was, I was too young and, and uh, you know, and then, and then I wanted to be climbing in a certain area. And so all I had was a, a tent and a bicycle. So I got dropped off there and I lived for the winter, you know, climbing in this area. And then eventually I bought another van. I've lived out of another van for like 15 years. And so, you know, the point was always the focus on, on the task itself. Like if I want to climb in different areas, what best facilitates that climbing? So that, that task though, the one that the movie's about, the one we're discussing, mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about your new podcast in just a minute and kind of what you hope to convey there. But that four hours is your brand. I mean, that, so, so I wonder how do those four hours in your mind define your life? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, man. It's like, you're all about the life questions today. I'm like, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like, I, I haven't totally thought of it in, in those terms, but I mean, you're right that those four hours do sort of represent the end of a 15 year journey to some extent, you know, basically learning how to climb, learning how to free solo, like having this big dream, working towards it, and then eventually having, like you said, this four hour climb. But I mean, you know, I've never thought of it as like my brand or my, my, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's just like a defining life moment. We are like, this is like a peak experience in life, but but, you know, I've had a lot of other very significant climbing moments for, for myself, like in the mountains doing first ascents, like expeditions in various parts of the world. And so I think even though, you know, the, the free solo of El Cap is probably the most widely known publicly, you know, privately, there are a lot of other very meaningful moments in climbing for me. So, you know, and, and I'm sort of still sort of working on them, you know, I'm like working on some, some big solos around my home right now. And um, they probably won't be as significant as, as El Cap in any way, but but it's still a big challenge for me. You know, it's still something that I'll be proud of. That the, the culture and that, and, and that group of people that are passionate about that sport, it, it intrigues me because if you go on YouTube and you watch some of the videos, it's six, seven, eight million views uh, on, on some of those videos about what you guys do. Mm -hmm. How would you de describe that community and, and the passion that, that they have for that? Well, I think that, so the climbing community, like you said, is a very rich, vibrant community, very passionate about the, the activity of climbing. Though I do think that if you're looking at YouTube views, you're probably lumping in a lot of non-climbers as well, just people who right. are on their computer who are totally transfixed by whatever, you know, it's like probably came up with autoplay and they're like, what is this? But, you know, it's easy to get sucked into climbing videos because the, the scenery is so beautiful, the landscape is beautiful, and, and the activity is so you know, foreign to most people. They're like, what is happening? This is totally insane. And so, you know, I mean, I think that, yeah, yeah, it's a combination of like a really passionate climbing community, but then also a lot of interest from, from non-climbers. How'd they all react to, to you completing LCAT? What'd they say? I mean, the film obviously was, was well-received, you know, I yeah. mean, it was uh, very, I mean, to me, very surprisingly so, because it's not like I have any experience with feature films. It's not, you know, I didn't really know that people would actually go to the theater and watch it. But like to see the film Free Solo on IMAX with like a full theater and people's imagine. minds all blown. I was like, this is amazing. Like it's a totally incredible experience. So I'll get you out of here on this. You have a new podcast. Tell us about that and what you hope to convey on that platform. Yeah. So, so I have a new podcast called Climbing Gold. And it was sort of, I mean, when you talk about the, the, the passion of the climbing community, it's, it's been an interesting time for climbing the last, you know, 10 years or so, like the, the sport has been growing exponentially. 
And part of that is are things like the success of, of Free Solo, the film. But um, I don't know if you know, but climbing's in the Olympics for the first year this summer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, climbing is going to be showcased on this like much bigger stage. And then also climbing gyms have been been growing like crazy. So there are a lot more people trying climbing for the first time. And so anyway, my uh, the the co-founder of, of the podcast and I, Fitzcahal, the two of us felt like it's this important moment in climbing where you know, the sport is growing tremendously and moving in certain directions, like toward the Olympics, let's say, but it also has this incredibly rich history, you know, full of like crazy stories of adventure, you know, and in some ways, something like free solo is kind of far along that spectrum. You know, it's, it's really like a story of adventure in the mountains by yourself. I mean, it's kind of right at the core of like, what is climbing and, and the Olympic experience is, is, it seems like it's diametrically opposed to that. And yet they're both still considered climbing. And so, you know, our podcast, you know, Climbing Gold is basically an attempt at bridging those two worlds and sort of explaining where climbing has come from and where it's going and, and how they're connected. Really cool, man. Really yeah. cool. Uh, and, well, and, and on a more personal note, it's just been a great way to interview all the best climbers of all time and like hear their best stories about, I mean, it's been totally crazy because a lot of the people are uh, personal, you know, childhood heroes of mine. And to hear how they got into climbing and to hear some of their best stories that help convey where the sport, you know, began and, and what that means for the future of climbing. It's uh it's really kind of a privilege to like curate those stories a little bit. What questions do you ask them? Oh, I mean, we honestly, some of them, it's the most obvious questions that get the crazy stories, you know, they're like, how did you start climbing? And then they right. tell these crazy stories about hitchhiking across the entire country to go to the Grand Teton and like climb this mountain when they're 17 with no equipment and no, and you're like, really? And, and in a lot of ways, those stories really highlight the changes in climbing because nowadays people go to a birthday party at the climbing gym when they're five. I mean, which is basically what I did. And, you know, and you have a totally safe and accessible way of, of entering the climbing world. But, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, those opportunities didn't exist. And so the people that got into climbing seriously were very fringe characters. You know, they were very independent free thinkers. Like they were totally on their own path. It's a, it was really interesting. Really appreciate your time, Alex. Thanks, man. And uh, what you do is really inspirational. The film is tremendous. If you guys have not seen Free Solo, make sure you do. And check out Alex's new podcast. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the time. So... Again, I did not get this unbelievable vulnerability, but dang, did I learn. I learned a lot about the way that he operates. And I didn't get that, that question right there towards the end. I didn't know how he would take the ethos question because as a guy who is obviously a minimalist, the way he lives his life, like stuff ain't his thing. He's, I he's a minimalist that. in life and also on the wall. And on the wall, that's right. Like, I admire that a lot. I admire, I mean, he, again, he lived in his mom's van until he destroyed the van. And then he's like, well, I don't have the van anymore, so I have a bike and a tent. I'll just use those instead. And now he has a new fancy pants van that has like a pull-up bar in it I saw in the movie. But anyway. I, the one thing that I found that was amazing is you don't need any, like, permit or anything to go climb. I know I couldn't believe that either. I was so excited to learn all about the liability. I figured you had to sign your life away. Yeah. I figured you had to pay some astronomical fine, uh, um, a fee in order to sign your life away. And yet, uh, no, the climbing culture 
according to Alex, you guys just heard there, is no, this is a very age-old, primitive, uh, passionate group, and we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. And I, I like I, again, I learned so much and I admire so much that whole culture and that whole thing. And another thing that I found interesting in talking to him that, that you guys just heard as well, when I went, so, so after you watched the movie, you then, like I went on YouTube and I was just kind of tooling around in preparation for the interview, looking at YouTube videos about mountain climbing and about um, free climbing and all those things. And the astronomical numbers in viewership that these videos do blew me away. I forget what sponsor it or what company it was. It was one of the outdoors companies, whether it was Yeti or North Face or one of those, uh, did a 45-minute a piece on this mountain. And... It was like 7 million views, and the video was not that old. It might have been a few months old. And I just thought, man, that's really cool that that, that many people are intrigued by it. And Alex is right in what he told me. That's not all hardcore free climbers or, or outdoorsmen. It's also people like me who are happening upon that video and – the aesthetic beauty of the video, you go, oh my, I have to stop and watch this. Um, speaking of scaling large mountains, Oral Roberts is doing it. They are in the Sweet 16, and their first foe in the NCAA tournament was none other than the Ohio State Buckeyes. Travis, uh, for those of you who cannot see, I guess nobody can see. We don't put this online. Never mind. Travis is shaking his head. He is rubbing his forehead he has a look of utter disgust on his face. Where are we with this? I'm still, I think, in like the disbelief stage. Like I expected it, you know, kind of a, a slow start, but you just kind of lean on them and you lean on them and you get out of there with the victory. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to happen. I'm like, all right, we still win. What you see a lot of times in tournaments, teams have scary games to start and they go on a run and it just it never happened. We, we play that game nine more times. We win all nine, but guess what? It's a, it's a one and done. And, and the worst part about it was this game tipped off at 3 PM on Friday of the first day of the tournament. So by five 15, the tournament was ruined for me. It, like delete the app. I've haven't watched a whole lot of the NCAA tournament, honestly, just cause I'm like, I just, it's still bitter. And now the only stinking team left in the Big Ten is the one team that I don't care. I want them to lose. Yeah, and they're pretty good, too. Uh, they're pretty good without their best player and are certainly one of their best players, probably their best player. Um, and Travis won't say their name, so I will. That's uh, the University of Michigan. Yeah, it's interesting, man. I, um, I really like Alabama. Of course, I've seen them a lot in person. Uh, LSU – I felt like LSU had a really good chance to defeat Michigan. Michigan ultimately put them that away. Was, that game was similar to the LSU-Bama game where it was just – It was a dog. It was I just could. punches left and yeah. right being thrown, and it was 
who was going to be the last standing. And right. It, it was haymakers. And yeah. it was awfully, awfully fun to watch. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So we'll have to see who prevails in this thing. Of course, Syracuse. I mean, Bayheim, what he does. It's, it's And also, it's that zone when you don't have much time to prepare for it. That zone can give you fits. Major headaches, man. Yeah, major headaches. They do a really good job. Speaking of basketball, quickly before we got to wrap, uh, you had a uh, interesting video that uh, surfaced from playing basketball. You're just chucking a layup up over your head, which I think then it would have been a top 10 play. I still think now sports and should run it anyways and put it in the top 10. I do too. So it was my senior year of high school, and, and Travis is right. My high school teammate, Mitch Reed, now is the head of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for basically the entire western half of, of the state of Virginia, of the Commonwealth. And he put a video online on, on one of the social media feeds of the last second of the game Travis is discussing, where – the ball was inbounded to me, and I threw this no-look, like laser beam, no-look pass to Mitch in the post, and he lays it up, and we win the game in overtime. It was an important game for us back then. Well, earlier in that game with like, I don't know, like a minute earlier, there I mean, there's only like a minute and a half left in a game or something, we get a steal, and we were in that Syracuse 3-2 or whatever you want to call it, like one three one matchup kind of zone. We call it a 3-2. It's really a one, kind of a 1-2-2 two, two kind of thing. Anyway, I was up at the top and because I was our point guard. And Aaron Myers, uh, my teammate, steals the ball from this guy, from the opponent. And he throws the ball up ahead on an outlet pass. And he was throwing that thing to Manute Bowl. Like, I, I don't know who in the hell he was throwing that thing to. But I'm only six feet tall. So it goes sailing, whizzing over my head, and I run it down at the baseline. I, I secure the ball, but my momentum's taking me out of bounds. So I simply grab the ball, throw it up over top of my head. It goes over top of the backboard, nothing but net. Goes in. And it, it, I, I had forgotten all about the video, and Mitch and I were talking about it after he posted the original clip. I'm like, is that the same game that I shot that ball over my head? He goes, dude, I have it. I was like, you have it? And then he uploads it, and so I'm like, oh, I'm showing this to the whole world. This is cool. To make you feel old, uh, I believe that was on January 11th, 1994. It, was po- it had posted uh, – I turned six that day. Wow. That was my so birthday. I was, let me think about this. 1994, I turned 18. So I was 17, almost 18. Yeah. All right. On that note, Travis can go to hell. Um, thank y'all for listening. And, and thanks so much to Alex Honnold for sharing his story with us. Uh, we might have to have him back because I got some more grilling to do. I, I got to. I got to bust out my pit boss grill and I got to, I got to grill. We need to have him back when he's on, we'll get him on Eastern time zone and have him on at like 8 PM and where he's, you know, no doubt. Uh, And next week I'll have something interesting to talk to you guys about too. I'm leaving tomorrow as we tape this, it's Thursday afternoon. I leave tomorrow for Los Angeles. 
McGee and I are going on a boondoggle for work that is the most incredible ESPN boondoggle of all time. Incredible, ridiculously incredible. Um, I'm going to pack my uh, pink flamingo shirt, and we're going to go kick some butt. We're going we're gonna to have a fun pod next week, too, because we're going to put the, the band together. Be a good time. You, next you. You, me, Eves, and Barry are going to do a Masters pre-pod. Yep, that's right. Uh, Matt Barry and Michael Eves will join Travis and me. We'll preview the 85th Masters tournament. And I can't wait to uh, to see those guys next week or a couple weeks here and chat with those guys. And Hey, congratulations to Eves. He, uh, it was just announced that Michael will be doing the post-round interviews on ESPN on Thursday and Friday after the rounds at the first two rounds of the Masters. That's awesome for him. He's a phenomenal guy, uh, like loves golf, and and I'm just thrilled for him to get that opportunity. So congrats to Eves. We'll talk all about that next week. I'll bust his chops about everything I can, and y'all know my relationship with Barry. That's just a walking um, – how can I even say this appropriately? I can't say it appropriately. So uh, Maddie and I love to make fun of each other. So anyway – Thank you guys for listening. Thanks so much to our law enforcement officials in communities all over this country working hard to keep our community safe. Thank you so much to our uh, firemen and our first responders sacrificing your own lives and and running into the fire to save other lives. That's amazing, and we're so grateful for y'all. Thank you to our military uh, domestically and all around the world sacrificing so much to ensure that we live in a free land. That's an unbelievable blessing that we do not properly appreciate in a lot of cases. I'm so grateful for it. Y'all have a great week. Thank you. This is Marty Smith's America. We'll see you next time around.